You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band, Great Song. But yeah, and are you recording? I'm recording. You're recording. I am. You're actually recording. We're on. Oh my we're god, on it, baby! So this is how we're starting the episode then. <laughs> I guess so. This is the first one. The first Just episode. Confirm, except confirm that the red light is on. Except that this this isn't the first episode. It is, but it isn't. It is, but it isn't. It's the first episode. It's the first episode for the majority of people listening, but for a small population of people. This is not the first episode. Do you or do you... uh, Correct. I was waiting. Do you or do you not agree? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I can't argue with that. It's true. But technically, technically, it's the first episode. And about that, I would like to say hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the podcast that will piss you off. This is Bad Band Great Song. I'm your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry! How you doing? How you been? <laughs> the band we're focusing our critique on today is Semisonic, and their song, Closing Time. Closing time, one last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I know who I want to take me home. Closing time. One last call for alcohol. So finish your whiskey or beer. <laughs> Closing time is the lead single from Semisonic's second record, Feeling Strangely Fine. Closing Time is their grandest and defining moment. It is a song that echoes in the heads of countless folks when they consider what they think 90s pop soft rock sounds like. Semisonic is a simple band with, dare I say, a rather bland story. (laughs) Great way to kick things off, right, Cherry? Yeah, hell yeah. I'm I'm glad we're kicking it off with a bang over here. (laughs) Yeah, I know how to get people hyped. A (laughs) semi-bang. A semi-bang, exactly. Uh, But the band also has a surprisingly deep and compelling set of roots in the raucous, legendary, and innovative Twin Cities rock scene. Though Semisonic had other hits, depending on what your threshold for hit is, they never had another song that matched closing time, domestically or abroad, casting them in the eyes of many as true and archetypal one-hit wonders, however dubious that statement may be here. Semisonic has their stands. And <laughs> yeah, you're not fans, you're stands. If you're a fan of Semisonic in 2021, I no offense, but if you're a fan of them in 2021, you are their stan. That's not a criticism, just a fact. Thus, people will fight us when we say <laughs> Semisonic is a bad band. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, especially after that last EP. If you're if you're still with them after you're not alone, hate to break it to you, but you're probably alone. 
<laughs> but as always, while we look at that, we're not here to prove to the diehards that Semisonic is bad. No. No, we're here to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of their song, Closing Time. So, we're going to examine Semisonic and the song, Closing Time, in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though Semisonic is a bad band, Closing Time's a pretty great song. But, before we get there, let's dive into the band's story. The Minneapolis, Minnesota, one half of the Twin Cities was St. Paul, Minnesota. It's the home of legendary and unbelievably famous artists. Prince, Lizzo, the Andrews Sisters... Not to mention the home of the world-famous First Avenue. That's right, that's right. And First Avenue will make its appearance in the show eventually. If not in this episode, I honestly forget, actually. <laughs> but it is the home, also, of iconic surf rock band, The Trash Men, which may seem confusing to people, but I looked it up, and people surf in Duluth, Minnesota. The Great Lakes, Lake Superior, is apparently a sort of popular surf spot for people in Minnesota. We love you folks in Minnesota, by the way. And the Twin Cities is also home of the raucous and revolutionary sounds of bands like Babes in Toyland, Husker Du, The Replacements, uh, Soul Asylum. Huh. Gonna have to address that one soon. Oh! Well, that's exciting. I got, I got plenty of opinions on Soul Asylum. <laughs> Well, well, before we get there, there's one more band that this scene was apparently home to, uh, Semisonic. So yeah, let's, let's get that straight again, folks. Who's Scurdu, The Replacements, and Semisonic all have roots in the same scene, essentially. And, and yeah, Soul Asylum, but you're gonna have to wait, folks, at home. And you too, Cherry. That's next week. But, yes, pop soft rock band Semisonic's roots can actually be found in the iconic and storied Twin Cities independent rock scene of the late 80s thanks to a band named Trip Shakespeare. Trip Shakespeare is a pretty great band. You know, good. Good to great. Good to... They're fine to good to at times sort of great if you think that. (laughs) This is not my opinion on the band. They are jangly, hypnotic, poetic, romantic, with a capital and lowercase r, and deceptively dark. They are unquestionably, actually, a better band than Semisonic, just not necessarily from the perspective of your average top 40 mainstream pop fan. Their songs are very distinct, intricate, and not designed for pop airplay. They really just feel like a... A ripoff of that band Love from the 60s to me. They're just so unimpressive and unoriginal. That's actually... Dude, I hadn't thought of that, honestly. And I guess I just don't listen to enough Love, so you're putting, you're educating me right here. That's, that's an interesting point of view, dude. Are you a big Love yeah, fan? We've literally never talked about Love. <laughs> yeah, Love is awesome, dude. <laughs> love is awesome. Oh, man. The Red Telephone? Oh, all right, there you go. Gets me every time. Gets me every time. Wow, look at that. Razor sharp insight. And about that, uh, well, but, but about Trip Shakespeare, rather, why are we bringing them up? Well, you see, Trip Shakespeare 
was a Twin Cities independent rock band made up of guitarist and singer Matt Wilson, drummer Elaine Harris, and bassist John Munson. Remember that name, bassist John Munson. And eventually, Matt Wilson's younger brother, guitarist and backup vocalist Dan Wilson. Trip Shakespeare never quite made it, however. They weren't as ambitious or irreverently hooky as Husker do, and they weren't as dangerous, sexy, and shambolic as the replacements, and they definitely weren't as pouty or primed for soft grunge stardom as Soul Asylum. After four solid and fairly remarkable albums between 1988 and 1991, albums that don't quite sound like anything else and only got kind of better as they went, though the first is pretty much my favorite, they called it quits. And after that, Matt Wilson's younger brother, guitarist Dan Wilson, decided, fuck that shit, I'm going to get famous. Not, not a direct quote, folks. Don't. <laughs> don't 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 quote me on that. But but let's hear a direct quote from Dan Wilson explaining what Semisonic is and the difference between a rock band and a pop band. So here's Dan Wilson in an interview from 1998 with Internet Show Launch, and Future Me is going to put that in right here. I think we're a rock band, but we're also kind of puss. So you know, it's it's. It's, you know, it's a pop band. I think that's because we don't have sort of, you know, uh, we, we don't look like a hairy rhino coming to, like, you know, hump everybody and, and then kill them. Perfect. That's, right. <laughs> that's great. <Yeah. laughs> oh, folks, well, I hope you enjoyed that one. Ah, and so, pop band frontman Dan Wilson cut his hair, tightened up his clothing, and began tightening up his song craft. Well, in some definition of tightening up. Oh. <laughs> yeah, definitely not my definition of tightening up. Yeah. And I def- I'm surprised you didn't mention uh, his sweet new sideburns Yeah, he started rocking. Well, that didn't fit my narrative of him cutting his hair and becoming all corporate pop rock, but that is true. Speaking of love, he had a pretty sweet pair of, uh, of uh, mid to late 60s sideburns <laughs> going there. Yeah. Yes. Montgomery Burns would not be happy. How's that for a deep Simpsons ref for the other 37-year-olds out there? I'm not, I'm not, I am not 37. I'm 33, by the way, folks. He began focusing, he being Dan Wilson, he began focusing on more straightforward, conventional, and concise songs than Trip Shakespeare was known for. Wilson then partnered up with the Trip Shakespeare bassist, John Munson and drummer Jacob Slichter to form a band they thought would be called Pleasure, but ended up being called Semisonic. What a bummer, man. Pleasure is such a sick band name. It Bands is. are so important, and these guys literally picked a semi. <laughs> it's such a shame. <laughs> Listen, folks, first impressions matter, <laughs> you know? It is. Dude, you're so right. I think, though, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but Pleasure is like kind of too punk rock for them, almost. Do you know what I mean? But Yeah, definitely. It, it's too punk rock for them, but also, as we'll see, and as, I, as I'm pretty sure you'll touch on later, too, there is a bizarrely sexual element to Dan Wilson and Semisonic is very weird. Yes, there is. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, his live dancing, just watching some live videos of him, particularly the Jay Leno performance. Yo, they, uh, they said Elvis just, had hips, right? But damn. 
Yeah, he's got some white boy hips, boy. <laughs> really, really compliment that baby-making music Semisonic makes. And, and pleasure. speaking of the Pleasure EP, in 1995, Semisonic released what would essentially be their coolest, rawest, and arguably best work, again, for people who are not Top 40 fans, the Pleasure EP. The Pleasure EP is one of those EPs with 14 songs on it, though seven of those 14 tracks are humorously short Seconds long, guided by voices, styles, song sketches that we're just supposed to accept as actual songs. And hey, 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 you suffer, but why? It's cool. I get it. I get short songs. It is worth noting, however, <laughs> they take us to such an extreme that there is one track called Blank, which is just literally 10 seconds of silence. Ah, song craft, right? Jokes aside, though, these aren't songs. Guided by Voices wrote 10 and 20 second songs. These aren't that. These are just outtakes that they're calling songs. And indeed, the Pleasure EP sounds like a semi-sonic we won't ever hear again. This is them at their bookish, precious, middle American indie band peak. They would never again capture a sound as individualistic as this well, until the song Closing Time. And the new EP... You're not alone, but, you know, we'll touch on that later. Uh, and I, I do want to just clarify, because I know, I know, Jerry, you do have some feelings on you're not alone. I don't think it's great. I just think it sounds distinct compared to, you know, their back catalog. So that's all I meant there. Sure. I, I, yeah, I, I has some hooks, I think, that I, I remember. Oh, that's... Oh, we're going to get into hooks in a bit, though, folks. Don't you worry. Uh, but yes, 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 just to drive a point home, by the way, folks, Semisonic was indeed an indie band. <gasps> I know. <gasps> I know. Yeah, everyone, everyone in Brooklyn, except you, Jerry, everyone is bro in Brooklyn is crying right now. Everybody who thinks indie is a genre is in fucking shambles. As we speak. So let's let's clear up two things very quickly. This one is for everybody on the internet, primarily Reddit. Okay, one, indie <laughs> is spelled I-N-D-I-E, not I-N-D-Y. You see, it's short for the word independent, not Indianapolis or Indiana. Okay? Two, being indie means one thing and one thing only. You and the label you're on, if you're on one, are not in any way, shape, or form connected to and backed by a major label, of which there are three, Universal, Warner, and Sony. And you better believe they own most of what is out there, even that label you think is indie. Not all, not all, but many. The music industry is way more of a fully controlled racket than you may understand folks at home that is a hundred percent true and i have no idea why being indie turned into having such a definition or why it's such a highly regarded title to hold and like why why are you striving for for indie i don't i, don't, I just don't get it what it's turned into but it, you know it is interesting and i don't want to dwell on that too long man but i think like one indie sounds better 
than saying like, oh, I'm in an unknown band, right? You know, it it right. says you're underground, but not unknown. And again, it says you're underground. I don't want to get too socio-political here, but we are, after all, especially now, we're living in a time where everybody wants to be other if they can. People, as normal as most folks are, people want to not be normal while still being wildly normal. So, yeah, it's, it's weird that India has become like a thing that people cling to and wear like a badge of honor, even when it doesn't make any sense. But here we are. And perhaps, not surprisingly, as this was an indie release, the Pleasure EP also features the coolest art direction of any semisonic release. It vaguely actually recalls the aesthetic of Trip Shakespeare albums which preceded it. The Pleasure EP is the sound of an indie band doing its damnedest to create pop within the confines of what could be classed as college rock. Now, (laughs) college rock is another profoundly vague classification, though it's not as absurd of a term as indie. College rock is really anything that is not quite mainstream, but rather popular with taste-making college kids who are as educated as they are pretentious and debaucherous. Think of any hard-working independent band from England or America in the mid-80s to mid-90s, and, you know, chances are at one point they were called college rock. <laughs> I feel like college rock is the perfect genre to describe semi-sonic, and I've always defined it just as, like, very specific to time and place. Sure. Like not, not timeless, not fully realized, not cohesive. And like the ultimate genre of a bridge to nowhere. It just encapsulates, encapsulates what a, a college student is. That's where the college genre is. So. That is an amazing interpretation of college rock, dude. I was, cause I was just going to come in with a quick, polite rebuttal of, I, th- you know, I think most college rock is usually cooler than semi-sonic, but I, I can't. That was some philosophical ass shit, man. I can't argue with that definition you just gave. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, for sure. A lot of it's cooler, but you know, a lot of a lot of college kids are cool too. Sure, sure, sure. And, and you know, I do want to say one more quick thing about indie being a sound or a genre to people. I feel like, and I, and I, I could be wrong. Everybody has their own archetypes in their heads, but I feel like so many folks, when they call a thing indie or they think of what indie music is, they rush to bands in their heads anyway. You know, they they think of sounds like Bright Eyes produced or the Decemberists or, you know, anything Ben Gibbard was part of, whether it's Postal Service or Death Cab for Cutie. There's like a very low-key, precious thing that I feel like people, most people say, oh yeah, that's indie music, whether it's on a major label or not. But again, folks, just wipe that out of your fucking lexicon. Indie is not a genre. <laughs> it's, it's a distinction based on where you're at in your career. That's pretty much it. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Words with definitions, you wor- know. <laughs> words with definitions. We're going to get pedantic on this show. I am, after all, <laughs> a college boy. And as the Pleasure EP was the sound of an independent band trying to decode pop music... It was released via Boston-based independent label, 
cherry disc. Because remember, kids, doesn't matter what type of music you play, you're only an indie band when you're on an independent label. The Pleasure EP was a largely unheard effort, as are most EPs released by indie bands before a major label release and chart-topping coronation. Cherry Disc, thanks to its powerful roster of 90s alternative acts, gained quite a bit of notoriety, and it was associated with Roadrunner Records and Sony's former independent label marketing and sales division, Red, which is now just The Orchard. Meaning at some point, Cherry Disc wasn't quite so independent anymore. But that aside, Cherry Disc ultimately folded, but not without leaving a legacy of vital, ardently alternative, fiercely independent, and important music behind. So fuck yeah, Cherry Disc. I'm going to burn one down for you later. (laughs) Okay, Andy. And you won't be joining me? Jerry? (laughs) Anyway, back to Semisonic. The band set forth on recording its debut full-length album and was signed to Elektra Records, a label that could be classified at times as independent and at other times major. It started as an independent label and still was when The Doors released their seminal eponymous debut in 1967. Indeed, Electra, despite how well-funded and successful it was, was 100% independent, not because it was run by some stoners in a basement, but because it wasn't owned by a big three record label, again, Universal, Sony, or Warner. But, but, haha, in 1970, Electra founder Jack Holtzman sold Electra to Warner Communications, meaning... When Semisonic was signed to Elektra, they were part of a major label family. I mean, it's not a uh, not a family. They were they were on a major label. Thank Anything you. under one of those major label Thank umbrellas you. is just considered a major. You know, they they share the same resources. They feed the same cow. Exactly, it's a major. And they're not a family. And it's something I'm going to keep banging on because I think it's fucking funny. But it's not a family. No business is a family. No corporation and its subsidiaries are families folks at home if your employer ever tells you how happy he is to have you as part of the family don't fucking trust that guy you're not part of their family they're gonna fire you as soon as they can anyway that electra deal that wouldn't end up working out because Bob Krasnow, then president of electra records who was president when semisonic was signed he did the dip he quit. <laughs> Bye. And I suppose Semisonic were viewed as some Krasnow guys because they were swiftly discarded after Krasnow left. Krasnow was replaced by Sylvia Roan, the first black woman to head a major music company. She was tasked with bringing Electra's sales to the $300 million level in three years. She did it in two. A bit more on the powerhouse that is Sylvia Roan. Tell us. Tell us about Sylvia Roan. She's currently the chair and CEO of Epic Records. Not only was she the first black woman to hold the title of CEO at a major label, but she was the first woman, period. She also held a senior position at all three aforementioned major labels. <laughs> what? Yeah. 
all three of them. She was a senior senior something at all three of them. She she's a triple crown senior executive. Triple threat. And 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 yeah, def- I definitely got most of that from the beginning of Wikipedia, but you know. <laughs> I I saved you guys some googling. That's that razor sharp research and insight I'm talking about, man. Come on. Bad, bad, great song. We read Wikipedia so you don't have to. Exactly. But, but once again, back to Semisonic. That's not where the story ends. Their major label full length debut still had another shot. After being dropped by Elektra, a member of the Warner Music Group family, the band was scooped up. By MC Ray Records. Well, let's play our favorite game. Was MCA an indie or a major? They're a major! That's right. They were a fucking major. And they have a long, long story. But the TLDR is, as detailed in a November 27th, 1990 LA Times piece, all the, all the way back in 1962, a company named the Music Corporation of America... MCA, bought a company called Universal Pictures and its parent company, Decca Records, meaning a company you may never have heard of was actually a company you absolutely have heard of. Universal, as in the Universal Music Group family of labels. Meaning, as Jerry confirmed, fuck yes, Semisonic was 100% no longer an independent rock band. And in 1996, they finally released their full-length major label debut record, The Great Divide. Uh, And it, you know, uh, didn't really do anything. Didn't do much of anything. Debut major label single, Down in Flames, failed to chart, while follow-up single, FNT, reached number 30 on the Billboard US Mainstream Rock Chart. I I had to look this up. FNT stands for Fascinating New Thing, which huh. certainly doesn't define the record or anything, but I ever wonder, I, re- <laughs> I really wondered if they considered it for the name of the album, because I feel like it's way better of a new, new band first album than The Great Divide. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you on that. I, I have no idea why you would even abbreviate Fascinating New Thing as FNT. This is such a weird... I don't know. Looking at FNT, I thought it was way more of a salacious, I don't know, like fucking naked turtles or something. Like, I don't, I just, why would, I don't know, why would you abbreviate fascinating new thing? I mean, it, it reminded weird. me of, it reminded me of PYT, but the Michael Jackson's uh, PYT, but still, I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. You may be onto something there. I, they are, they are a band that likes to reference things they are a highly derivative band which billboards paul verna will touch on i'm about to quote him this fellow billboards paul verna described semisonic's album the great divide as quote power pop trio delivers in irresistible three-minute tunes with smart but unpretentious lyrics hooks galore and sounds that are refreshing yet rooted in traditional 60s pop. Okay, Paul. Ooh, all right. Well, in contrast, <clears throat> Bad Band Great Songs, Andrew Finelli describes that summation as, quote, mostly wrong. 
and and that's how you first person, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Just teaching lessons left and right, and about lessons. We're gonna teach some more here, because I'm gonna be pedantic. You, you see, they were not a power pop band, okay? I, I, okay, we're gonna be pedantic on this show. That's the precedent I am setting here. That is the precedent we are setting here. Semisonic was not a power pop band. Uh, Power pop does not simply mean middle of the road adult contemporary music played by stringed instruments. Yep. Pedantic. That's me. That's me. Because guess what, folks? Words matter, and I just, I, this isn't in the script, I'm just going to say it right now, I refuse to believe Semisonic is in the same category of music as Big Star and Cheap Trick. (laughs) Semisonic is not power pop. Consistency matters, standardization matters, I'm going to be pedantic. Moving on. But not really, because I'm still talking to you, Paul Verna. Calling their songs irresistible is very subjective so i'll leave that alone whatever quote hooks galore ha oh <laughs> we're gonna get into that a little more later but i think a lot of professional reviewers don't know or understand what a fucking hook is oh boy we're gonna get into that later though don't you worry folks now paul verna saying they're rooted in traditional 60s pop okay all right Sure, I guess. It's all open chord guitar strumming and excruciatingly diatonic pentatonic guitar soloing. So, sure, 60s inspired it is. But but a quick layman's music lesson, if, quote, excruciatingly diatonic pentatonic guitar soloing was word salad to you, check it out. Give it to us, Andy. Oh, oh I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. I, Felice is ready for it. That's the that's the dog folks at home. I don't know if uh, well, you probably don't know. Well, this is a this is a cutout part. Uh, give it to us, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> give it to us, Fanny. <laughs> give it to me, Daddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sure one of those are gonna work. Yeah, one of those will work. <laughs> so first, pentatonic refers to the pentatonic scale. It's the first scale any guitarist learns. It's the simplest scale to learn. It is essentially the foundation for blues and therefore rock, riffing, and soloing. Diatonic is a bit more complex of an explanation, but a simple summary is this. Calling something diatonic means it does not at all deviate from the standard structured pattern of a scale. Now, that's not the actual definition of diatonic. Once again, don't quote me on that, folks. But that is what it means. If I were to read a literal definition of diatonic, it would require explaining at least two or three other concepts for the literal definition to make sense. So the IE, the in other words of excruciatingly diatonic pentatonic guitar soloing is, (laughs) his soloing is rudimentary as fuck with no surprises. It's the soloing of a pretty good first-year guitar student who believes guitar soloing begins and ends with the work of casually yet passionately racist, questionable parent, and quote, rock god (laughs) Eric Slowhands Clapton. (laughs) Cream of the crop, baby. He'll steal your wife. Don't let him watch your kids. Good music to sleep to, though. 
Oh man, if if you're still with us after that, here's this, folks. <laughs> yeah, we're starting the show by getting the show canceled. <laughs> anyway, moving on. As 1996 came and went, Semisonic toured and hunkered down to write new music. The band amassed 60 songs, allegedly. Dan Wilson just churning out songs seems to be a bit of a defining characteristic for the band, and that's something we'll also touch on a little more when we analyze the band. This monumental output, 60 some odd recording songs, would result in the 12-song breakthrough album. 1998's MCA released sophomore major label record Feeling Strangely Fine. Feeling Strangely Fine begins in no subtle fashion, completely blowing its load. There, that's, that's, some, that's, a, that's a sentence that Dan Wilson will like. Completely blowing its load. Feeling Strangely Fine starts off with the reason we're all here. Yeah. Yeah, you guessed it. The very first track on the album is Semisonic's definitive anthem, Closing Time. And oddly enough, the, the last song on the album is a track called Opening Time. <laughs> you know, when I said that, I, I had to check. I saw that. You, I had to check. Just to make, <laughs> I was like, God damn it. Is, he, is that true? I've listened to this album 12 times. And I don't remember that song. <laughs> anyway. If you ask me, folks, at home, it's rarely a good sign when an album leads with its biggest song. Disagree? Nope. Well, you shouldn't, and here's why. Albums are sequenced very purposefully. There are countless albums where the lead single and biggest single are not the first track. Typically, albums are sequenced for flow. Other times, they are sequenced to make sure you hear the best thing first. Sure, you know, lest you not get to it. But that's, again, that's not, doesn't necessarily bode well for the rest of the album. So when a song like Closing Time, the biggest and most standout song a band has, is sequenced first, it can be an indicator of the other song's comparative weakness. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I agree completely. But I just don't know if they had the foresight to know how huge that song was going to be in the end. So... I do have something to say about that very quickly. I, the band didn't, but their producer did. Sure. Uh, Nick Lunay apparently said to Dan Wilson after they uh, tracked that one for the first time, he, uh, their producer, Lunay, looks at Wilson and goes, so this is the one, right? And Dan Wilson's like, what do you mean? Oh, wow. <laughs> and Nick, is, Nick Lunay is like, this is, this is, this is the one. This is, this is your single, right? So, yeah, no, to your point, the band didn't get it. They didn't see it that way, but their p- producer fully understood that that was the best song on the album, and so we sequenced it first. And, folks, if you still disagree with me saying that sequencing your fir- the, the, the best song on the album first is kind of a bad sign, well, check this out. Second single off of Feeling Strangely Fine, Singing in My Sleep, did okay, did all right, but it did not do nearly as well as Closing Time. Feeling Strangely Fine is now a platinum-selling record, not multi-platinum, something their album, their, something their label was hoping for, but, but, but it was platinum, and that is thanks to their greatest song, and their biggest song, Closing Time. So first track and first single. That has me feeling strangely. <laughs> oh, 
man, that was that was that's that is a super band specific dad joke right there, my dude. That was that was good. Thank you, thank you for that. Uh, Practicing. All the folks at home are in standing ovation right now. That was good. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm, ba- yeah. I'm bowing. There you go. This is an audio show, folks. So we're going to describe every physical thing we do. I'm 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 quietly applauding you right now as you bow. Anyway, I'm still bowing. That was the best. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord! That was the best the band would ever do. Closing time, and the best they would ever do after that was probably a single they released in the United Kingdom. Feeling Strangely Fine's third and final single, Secret Smile. That song peaked at number 12 in the UK singles charts. In America, it peaked at number 21. An inversion of this number it peaked at in the UK charts. Spooky. And it peaked at number 20. <laughs> it peaked at number 21 on the U.S. alternative airplay chart and number 17 on the U.S. adult alternative airplay chart. Oh, my God, I hate Billboard chart names. It did not, however, reach the U.S. mainstream rock chart, something only Closing Time would achieve. After touring for Feeling Strangely Fine concluded, Semisonic would once again get to work on a new album. This new album, however would be their last. Well, for quite a while anyway, right? Well, I mean, the new rele- release is an EP, so technically it's their last album. Uh, all right. You're right. To date. You're right. I can't... <laughs> is that a threat, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> They'll be back soon. I don't know. There's some rumblings. There's some rumblings. That's true. Well, so, yes. No, Jerry, you are right. That, I mean, that... All About Chemistry would be, it's their last album. That newest release is an EP. So, yeah, that has to be thought of differently. I appreciate you being a stickler for that. Because that's what we're going to be here, folks. We're going to be sticklers. And speaking of All About Chemistry, their final album, 2001, well, (laughs) final as of now, 2001 saw the release of this third and so far final album, All About Chemistry. That album's lead single, Chemistry just barely broke the top 40 of the U.S. alternative airplay chart, peaking at number 39. It did, however, peak at number 6 on the U.S. adult alternative airplay chart. It did not place on the U.S. mainstream rock chart. And Mm. somehow, I don't know how they did it, but it's a real, it's somehow cheesier than an OK Go, like Rube Goldberg (laughs) type music video. They do the Rube Goldberg thing, but... Man, it's a cheesy version of it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I had completely forgotten about OK Go until you just brought them up, man. Oh, fuck. I think that might be a bad band with a great song. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> oh, man. We got to talk about that one. <laughs> we do. They're honestly not. They're not slated. They're not in our calendar of shows, but they might have to be now. I really got to review that stuff. I don't know. Back on track. Speaking of Dan Wilson being strangely sexual, <laughs> also released in 2001 was the single Get a Grip, a song that completely failed to chart on a national level. It may <laughs> it may have reached some number on some regional radio station 
most played or requested songs. I, I don't know. Those records aren't available to me. So if, if it did, folks at home, let me know. But I don't know. Which, which just a little bit more on their music videos. That video is such a strange, hypersexualized trip. I mean, it's just... Uh, yeah. It it's it's really <laughs> repressed and odd. I mean, it's like if Benny Benassi hated the gym <laughs> and pretty people. It's like the opposite. It's it's so strange, man. That's amazing. I mean, well, so you know, the, the song is about masturbation. It is weird that the whole thing is set in a. Yeah, it's it's weird. Semisonic being sexual is weird. Yeah. Don't you agree? Yeah. I know yeah. this isn't in the script, but right? No, it, it's very it's very weird and it's such a consistency through the band. I it, mean it, the band was gonna be called Pleasure, right, goddammit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Their cur- the label that I think is Dan Wilson's label is called Pleasure Sonic Recordings. They named their EP Pleasure. Um shit, I gotta I, let me look this up really quickly. They have a song on their on their on their album feeling strangely fine called where is this it's called yeah called completely pleased completely <laughs> pleased <laughs> by the way folks if you're not getting it completely has the word come in it something that Dan Wilson makes sure you understand with the way he sings it so <laughs> he fucks basically Dan Wilson Fox. He fucks. Dan Wilson Fox. There you go. I don't know why I'm hating. Dan Wilson Fox. God damn it. Dan Wilson. You fuck, son. You fuck. Ah, oh, man. And speaking of songs they released that didn't really do much, uh, the song Over My Head was featured in the 2001 teen movie Summer Catch. Something that people seem to remember fondly. I don't know. However, that song also did not chart anywhere. At all. <laughs> At all. I mean, God, again, maybe some local radio stations chart that I can't find records of somewhere, but that song never made it onto a national chart. And, and, and if there's some folks at home who are semi-sonic super fans screaming at us right now, at Bad Band, great song, Instagram and Facebook, at BBGS Show on Twitter. Let us know. Where did that song chart? I don't think it charted anywhere. I mean, it's, a, it's <laughs> over my head that anyone would even think it would. <laughs> right? Well, hey, maybe we'll find out. That semi-sonic super fan is out there somewhere, and they're going to let us know. And so, folks, this could be the end of the story, because semi-sonic stopped playing music after this. However, they didn't break up. What they did was something Dan Wilson refers to as ghosting the world, which I just think is is lovely. So in 2001, Semisonic just ghosted the world. And around this time, Wilson stepped away from Semisonic to focus on being a father, a family man. As you said, Jerry, he fucks and he has some children. <laughs> oh man he would also go on to have a successful career behind the scenes something we'll touch on shortly bassist john munson formed a side project with dan wilson's brother and former trip shakespeare frontman matt wilson their group it was named the flops and they mostly covered (laughs) 
they mostly covered Trip Shakespeare songs, as well as songs from Matt Wilson's solo career, which I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with. Oh, and they also had some new tunes. As Trip Shakespeare had a song called Beetle, Beetle spelled with an A, perhaps not surprisingly, the flop's debut and only album was named Ooh La La making it impossible to find due to that being the name of a much more famous album and song by a much more famous band named The Faces. You know, as in Rod fucking Stewart. Yeah, rooted in 60s music indeed. And I mean, Run the Jewels didn't make that search any easier either. That that song (laughs) is big on the internet. Exactly. Yeah, the flops didn't uh, didn't really have SEO in mind when they <laughs> did their whole thing, did they? <laughs> no, they did not. Yeah. Well, back to Paul Varna of uh, Billboard. I, I I think how he said that the Wilson brothers are rooted in traditional '60s music, saying they're rooted in traditional boomer era pop. Oh man, that's a severe understatement. They're not rooted in it. They are beholden to it, enslaved by it. They can't escape it. Now, I will say, Dan Wilson freed himself a bit from those quaint vintage constraints, but, but not because of Semisonic, because of his career as a professional songwriter for other folks. But again, we'll get there. John Munson, their bassist, also formed a jazz trio named The New Standards around 2005, while the flops transformed into the Twilight Hours, a sort of uh, folk pop group. It's nice music. Wait, 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 which band again? I, 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 was, I had to put that Run the Jewels on song. I was sorry. I was listening <laughs> to that on the background. That song is such a banger. Voila. Yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt. No, uh, the Twilight Hours, you were saying. You think, yeah, they, you ni- think they're nice, nice music? It's nice. It's nice, yeah, it's nice music. <laughs> okay, real, real Minnesotan of you, if you ask me, but cool. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, I, that's, uh, that, you know, the funny thing they say there is that it's, that's called the Minnesotan Nice. Minnesotan Nice is just uh, the, uh, go watch Fargo, folks, I'm not going to keep doing this. Go watch Fargo and the way they talk, it's actually called Minnesota Nice. Nice. You're just learning things on this show, folks. Anyway, during this time, in 2004, drummer Jacob Slichter released a memoir titled, So, You'll Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. A June 13th, 2004 New York Times article puts the crux of the memoir in stark terms, saying that Slichter, quote, finds himself deeply saddened with when presented with a platinum record, signifying sales of over a million copies of Semisonic's second album, feeling strangely fine. Slichter is saddened because he knows the CD despite the breakout hit Closing Time, will never go multi-platinum. His sadness is not a twisted form of egomania. He has practical reasons for it. Success in the music business is relative not only to your own expectations, but also to those of your record label. And Semisonic's label, MCA, had expected multi-platinum sales. Also, after recording and promoting the two albums, Semisonic had accumulated millions of dollars of debt, an amount from which mere platinum sales couldn't begin to extricate the group. And that was in a time before streaming, folks. Just imagine how much money those, those artists are racking up now with all those 
wonderful streaming deals and all those albums not selling. How about that? Hmm? How about that? All throughout this, semi-sonic frontman Dan Wilson had already begun his new career. The career that has essentially sustained him. A career as a professional songwriter. Dating all the way back to 1999, just one year after Closing Time came and went, Wilson earned his first co-write credit with Bick Runga for the song Good Morning Baby off the American Pie soundtrack. But that's not all. His most high-profile co-writes include songs for Jason Mraz, The Dixie Chicks, as well as their new incarnation as The Chicks, The Bravery, Weezer, Keith Urban, Josh Groban, Adele, specifically Someone Like You, for which he won a Grammy, Nas, Pink, Taylor Swift, John Legend, James Blunt, Spoon, My Morning Jacket, Harry Connick Jr., Panic at the Disco, Not a Surf, my alma mater, but I, 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 I didn't use that word right. Whatever. Not a surf. The guy from Not a Surf and I went to the same high school. Anyway, Andrew Bird, Cold War Kids, Halsey, Noah Cyrus, Leanne Rhymes and Stevie Nicks, Steve Perry, Mike Posner, JoJo, and Canadian superstar Celine Dion. Wow, he is quite an eclectic boy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of. A lot of songwriting credits, a lot of big songs too. And to uh, to be clear, not only did I not really, aside from Adele, someone like you, not only did I not name any of the songs, he has multiple writing credits with many of those artists. That list isn't half of what he's done. It's just a list of some of the biggest names he's worked with. But that's not all Dan Wilson did. He also started a solo career. He's even worked with Rick Rubin. And with that, with that, we essentially have Semisonic story. Between 2001 and 2019, Semisonic would get together occasionally and play at least one show a year, including a handful of anniversary shows for the Great Divide and Feeling Strangely Fine. <laughs> Again, they never broke up. They just ghosted the world. But as Wilson puts it, he always intended to come back and write for Semisonic. He just couldn't recall or pin down what it is to write a semisonic song. <laughs> that seems very accurate. But that's aside, that aside, let's get to ending their story, shall we? <laughs> but before we end that story, let's address something kind of fucking crazy. On June 1st, 2008, a brutal and destructive fire broke out in Universal Studios. The true ramifications of the fire were kept under wraps, at the time, the damage was reported as only affecting archives of film and TV shows. Universal spokespeople stressed, quote, in no case was the destroyed material the only copy of a work. <laughs> oh, man. What a, what well, a claim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, spokespeople, am I right? PR, ha! Anyway, 11 years later, on June 11th, 2019, a New York Times piece titled The Day the Music Burned confirmed how false that fucking statement was. The article details the horror of the event and also reveals that ultimately an estimated 500 
thousand assets were destroyed. Oof. Those assets? Masters of songs. Single copy, one of a kind, and essential masters of roughly 500,000 songs. Incinerated, complete discographies of not just a few artists, but complete discographies of entire generations of artists across genres, gone up in literal flames. Physical masters and digital masters, gone forever. It is a really wild story, and the list of artists that lost masters and materials is is absolutely insane. So many artists were affected, dude, and folks at home. And the funny thing about this, when the fire first broke out, the New York Times published an article that was totally predicated on what these universal spokespeople said, quote, in no case was the destroyed material the only copy of work. That article just focused on, like, oh, you know... Uh, some some copies of movies were destroyed and a King Kong ride from Universal Parks were destroyed. But but no, no, no. As, as Jerry, as you just pointed out, masters of countless artists, a list so long you wouldn't believe. And, 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 and about this list and this fire, why does any of this matter? Why are we bringing this up? Well... Among the destroyed masters were none other than the master tapes for Semisonic's 1998 commercial breakthrough album, Feeling Strangely Fine. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. An unfortunate point to end the story on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to be laughing at this. I'm being a bad host right now. But the thing is, I know that we're not going to end the story there because there's one more point to make, folks. You're not alone. Well, well, no. Actually, no, you are. We're, we're all alone. You never truly know anybody, let alone yourself. We all die alone. Uh, How about that? But no, fuck me, because in this case, You're Not Alone is the title of Semisonic's most recent EP, their latest release, that EP that we keep referring to, their first bit of new music since 2001's All About Chemistry, thus bringing Semisonic's 19-year hiatus and finally the story to a close. Wait, 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 wait. That, that was a little that was a little too quick for the new shit, man. I, I really feel like I should I should take a second and elaborate on the new release. And you're right, this, you're right. Actually, Jeremy, could you tell us more about the new release and what you think of it? Yeah, the new introduction of Semisonic to the world. I just really wanted to flesh this out and, and it sucks. Ah ah I see, I see, I see, I see. It sucks, yes. And that that is a bad band, great review, great song review, <laughs> folks. <laughs> and official. With that, let's, <laughs> official. Let's talk about the song's creation now, shall we? Closing Time was written by Dan Wilson. It was produced by Nick Lune. Lune? Lune. It's a French name, I think, folks. Let me know how I'm pronouncing things. Nick Lune? Lune? Well, anyway, Laune has produced bands ranging from Public Image Limited, Killing Joke, Gang of Four, The Birthday Party, and The Slits, all amazing, by the way, to bands like In Excess and The Talking Heads to, 
Of course, semi-sonic. <laughs> wait, wait, why, why did In Excess of the Talking Heads make it into the all-amazing, by the way, category? Well, because I decided to uh, stop making sense. Huh? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Oh, wow. No, I just, no, honest answer, they're famous. I don't know, Talking Heads and In Excess are famous. I decided to give a little more shine to the less famous bands. I see, I see. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm all, I'm all about making sense, you see. Uh, and, uh, uh, more, more about this song's creation. Wilson wrote the song because the band got tired of continually closing sets with the song, If I Run. Oh, so, so they wrote closing time. So it makes perfect sense for the first song on a record. Let's write a song for the end of a set. Put it on the first song of the album. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And again, it's a song that is clearly about closing time or last call at a bar. But Dan Wilson, Dan Wilson also believes it's about more, as in it's a metaphor for the birth of his daughter. Although Dan Wilson, who went to Harvard, by the way, thinks it's a pun. Thinks it's a pun. In a November 18th, 2018 interview with Billboard.com, Wilson states, quote, When I was halfway done, I started realizing the whole thing was a pun about being born. So I just made sure the rest of the thing could, you know, ride with that double meaning. But nobody got the joke, and I didn't bother to explain. I thought everybody would get it. (laughs) Coy. Yeah, real, real metaphorical. Go read those lyrics. Uh, (laughs) (sighs) Well, Wilson attempts to clarify this in a 2019 article with American songwriter. Wilson says, quote, My wife and I were expecting our first kid very soon after I wrote the song. I had birth on the brain. I was struck by what a funny pun it was to be... Oh, man. Oh, man. What a funny pun it was to be bounced from the womb. Dan Wilson. Dan Wilson. Dan Wilson. Dan Dan Wilson. Daniel Wilson. Nobody uses that expression. Bounced from the womb, Dan Wilson, is not an expression. You didn't make a pun, Dan Wilson, because nobody else in the world, Dan, uses bounce to mean give birth. Therefore, you didn't exploit a double meaning of a word. This isn't a pun. Also, the word bounce never once appears in the song. You made a metaphor, Dan Wilson, not a fucking pun. Dan Wilson, you made a metaphor. Dan Wilson, Daniel fucking Wilson, you went to Harvard. God damn. Maybe he, out, maybe he bounced out of Harvard a little prematurely. Hey, that's a pun. That's See, there you go, <laughs> Dan Wilson. Ah, uh. All right, the one thing I'll concede as maybe being some sort of elongated pun. No, it's really just a metaphor, but okay. All right, fine. Oh, it is clearly about childbirth, so it's the kind of gross when you think about it lyric of, quote, this room won't be open till your brothers or your sisters come. Because that's exactly how I want to think of your wife's womb, Dan Wilson, as a room that won't be open until your daughter's brothers and sisters come. Thanks, thanks a lot, Dan 
Wilson, Dan, fuck. Dan Wilson! God damn. Fuck. Let's talk about this song's critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response, shall we? We shall. <laughs> oh, critical reaction. Well, despite popular media and the average person kind of portraying Semisonic as a joke, or at least nothing to be taken seriously, reviews from 1998 are largely positive, <laughs> at least in the States. Rolling Stone gave it a 3.5 out of 5 star review and said some very kind things about it, claiming, quote, It's full of insistent melodies and great big guitar hooks. Again, seems like a lot of folks don't know what a hook is. Oh, we will get to it. I whoa, promise we'll get to it. Wait, did you, did you know which, which Rolling Stone writer this is? I'm about to tweet at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, yeah. Noah Tarnow. Noah Tarnow, Jerry. Have have at it and let Noah Tarnow know what you think. All right, we're coming at you, bro. Watch out. <laughs> In England, however, critics kept the gloves off and went for bare-knuckle brutality. The Guardian gave it three out of five stars. Pretty similar review to a score to what Rolling Stone gave it. However... The Guardian took a little bit different of a tone with the language of their review. That review says, quote, that they call themselves semi indicates that even they feel a touch half-hearted about their music, which stirs the blandest elements of R.E.M., Travis, and Crowded House into a college rock stew. Oh, man. All the semi-jokes I've been holding back. <laughs> yeah, the Brits are making it for you, man. Those, uh, those classy Brits it. with their amazing, classy British television that every American loves so much. So thankful. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, about those British reviews, NME gave the album 2.5 out of 5 stars. And in a rather conversational and poorly written review that I won't and kind of can't quote verbatim, just because it's so shoddily written, NME states that Semisonic is an undemanding band. And while that benefits them, it is also their weakness. The piece slams Wilson's, quote, ill-founded and stateside-massaged belief that he's a great poet. (laughs) It ends by saying, quote, it's not just that they're fond of the softest of soft rock and the most adult bits of AOR either. They're also dumb as a donkey. Oh. On an album, yeah, dumb as a donkey, on an album that should reaffirm your faith in the power of old-fashioned songwriting, you're left underwhelmed, making any vague recollection of pleasure at its brighter moments feel like a guilty secret. Now, I don't, I don't usually agree with NME, but that was pretty righteous, <laughs> not going to lie. Uh, and, a, and a quick note on AOR. I know that probably is lost on a lot of folks. AOR can stand for a couple of things. It's either album-oriented rock or adult-oriented rock. The term has wide-ranging implications, and it's a very complex and nuanced thing to break down. But suffice to say, Fleetwood Mac and Eagles are some of the edgier sounds you'll hear from AOR radio stations. AOR Radio also has a dicey history of purposefully excluding black artists. And to be clear, at least nearly nothing in the music industry and radio happens by accident. 
at least nearly nothing. But that is an entire episode of a show that maybe is more equipped to really unpack that. That I, you know, I don't know. But are are we gonna do an O A R episode? That's, that's the real the question. question. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> do they have a great song? They're a bad band, but do they have a great song? I don't know. Uh, hit us, hit us on the socials. Let us know if there's a great OAR song. Yeah, that's right, folks at home. Bad ba- at Bad Band, great song. Instagram and Facebook at BBJS Show. Twitter. Let us know. Does OAR have a great song? And if you know, if you know this, I want to know how you know this. Do you listen to OAR? Expose yourself. But before you expose yourself, I not clothing and physically wise. Let's break down the commercial impact for this song. Closing Time, the single, brought Semisonic platinum sales for their album. This was a time when people didn't really buy singles. Not only did the average music fan not even think of purchasing a single in the 90s, it didn't really make much sense if you were an average or casual fan. I mean, why spend, you know, like $6.99 on a CD with two to three, maybe four songs, when you can spend about 10 on a CD with 12 to 14 songs, right? Well, I mean, you'd do it for like foreign releases and exclusive tracks sure. and stuff. I mean, that's why I did it. Totally. But yeah, not, not a casual fan, that's for sure. Casual or average, for sure, wouldn't. But exactly. I, I, this is something I'm sure we're going to talk about on a lot of other episodes, but you and I definitely frequented the import and singles sections at, right. at, at music stores, which is, again, not something... Like, the import and singles section was usually by the adult section. You know? It was right. a very not casual section at stores. <laughs> Tucked into a corner, for sure. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So those casuals were buying the album to get the single. Right. Right? So because of that, Feeling Strangely Fine went platinum, selling over a million copies. Thanks, 100%, at least almost 100% entirely, to Closing Time. Hell, it was the first song that I ever learned how to play on guitar, so I know I bought the CD just for the song, and I wasn't alone in making that purchase. Well, you were alone between you and I, but... (laughs) That was that was moving the needle for you back in the day, Andy. Like, do you, do you do you still know how to play it? Can we can we get a couple bars? Like, let's make it happen. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but yes, Jerry, I do still know how to play the song because it's four chords and the same exact four chords as Bob Dylan's "Knocking on Heaven's Door." All right, there you go. G you go. D A minor C, and and just to be really clear, no. It didn't move the needle for me. It was the first song that my guitar teacher taught me on guitar. Okay, okay, okay. I didn't choose this. It was chosen for me. Makes a little more sense. Yeah, I have to, def- I have to, I have to d- defend my punk rock hipster credibility here, after all, you know? Oh, gosh. And speaking of things that may or may not have credibility. How's that for a segue, folks? Let's talk about chart success. Closing time is Semisonic's biggest hit. It reached number one on the U.S. alternative airplay chart, a chart they would never crack the top 10 of ever again. It peaked at number eight on the U.S. mainstream top 40 chart while hitting number four on both the U.S. adult alternative songs and U.S. adult top 40 charts. 
Oh, Billboard. It also reached number 11 on the U.S. radio singles chart and number 13 on the U.S. mainstream rock chart. Also a chart they would never, ever crack the top 20 of ever again. I wonder where it lands on jukebox, <laughs> jukebox charts and if there even are jukebox charts, but I feel like it, would, it probably does best jukeboxes at bad band great song on instagram and facebook bbgs show on twitter folks let us know how does this song rank on the jukebox charts <laughs> how does this song rank in your hearts because i can t- it's no- number one in my heart but now let's talk about the fan response so people love this song as a meme and for real people love this song if you were here, if you were around in 1998, you know how ubiquitous this song was. It was fucking everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, seriously. It's played in countless bars. It's still played in countless bars at literal closing time. I've got a few bar owner friends, and they tell me that that's actually a part of getting your liquor license in the USA. <laughs> you got to... You got to guarantee that you play closing time every night when you're closing up. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's big. <laughs> There's a big fine if you don't. There's a really, a really big fine. It does almost seem that way. That's how ubiquitous it is. But anyway, it's been, speaking of its ubiquity, it's been in movies, TV shows, both for comedic effect and sincere moments of sentimentality. It's been played at high school dances. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's still played at high school dances, but it was anyway. It's a song people know, even if they don't know what band is behind it, right? Yeah, definitely the majority <laughs> is, is in that category. but Especially now, yeah. And hey, we can see proof of how impactful this song was. According to website setlist.fm, Semisonic played just 14 shows in 1996, the year their full-length debut came out. They played four shows in 97, but in 1998, the year Feeling Strangely Fine and Closing Time came out, Semisonic played a recorded 50 shows. Wow, that's an incredibly low number. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) It is. For the peak of their career, like over three years playing... uh, 68 shows that's weak (laughs) they didn't play much at all actually 50 is kind of like a career height for them which is the crazy part um and that's something we're going to look in we're going to look into a little more in depth in our next episode folks which i won't spoil for you although if you were paying close attention at the beginning of the show you probably you you already spoiled it (laughs) (laughs) when we do talk about that song folks we are going to look at a band that played a lot more shows than Semisonic, just to give you an idea of how few shows Semisonic actually played. But that's the story for another time. Uh, before we get into that other time, let's end this episode. And ending that episode, this episode, this episode, means moving on to segment three, which means talking about what makes the band bad and what makes their song great. So... Let's get in to what makes the band bad. Oh boy. Semisonic songs. Oh man, I'm just I'm gonna say semisonic songs aren't special. They're they're a dime a dozen. By design. 
at least for semi-sonic, songs are something Dan Wilson seemingly just tosses out effortlessly. Every song on every semi-sonic album you hear, if Dan Wilson is to be believed, is one of nearly 80-some-odd songs prepared for a single album. Now, that could and should be a good thing, but it, it isn't always. Because, <laughs> despite naming their third album All About Chemistry, songwriting isn't a science. You know, on some level it is. It's definitely, on some level, something formulaic. You can, you know, plug bits in. and But it really isn't. It's not a hard science. There is no one-to-one ratio between how hard you work and how good your songs are. A metaphor I can think of, you know... Or an example I can think of is if a scientist works relentlessly to create a vaccine and is properly funded and given all the time they need, again, in this hypothetical, properly funded and given all the time they need to work, they tend to make the vaccine, right? Right? That's a pretty pretty extreme example, but yes, sure, (laughs) yes. I'm a pretty extreme guy, but all I'm saying, all I'm saying is if... You work at something like math or science. You know, you you put... You're building a a wall. (laughs) You you put time into it, it gets done. There's a one-to-one ratio, essentially, with how much work you put in and then the, the result. But songwriting is not that way. You could workshop endlessly and never write a great song. Hell, you could become an awesome painter if you grind it out, right? I mean... You know, was Bob Ross Picasso? No, but Bob Ross paints better than I can. And and based off of every episode I've ever watched, he told me I could do it too if I just work. And I believe him. God damn it. You can. There you go. The joy of painting. God damn it. But you know what you won't necessarily become better at no matter how hard you work at? It. Songwriting. Unfortunately. I know. Sucks to hear, right? And to the chagrin of theater teachers and songwriting coaches everywhere, check it out. Talent is real, and talent always trounces skill. And you can't teach talent. Oh, man. So, all right, Dan Wilson. He is at once precious (laughs) and not at all. He's precious in that he wants his songs to have impact, and he feels very passionately about that. He's precious in that he'll grind away churning out a hundred songs till he finds the 12 or 14 that he loves. But he's not precious in that he's almost too much of a workman. He's not precious enough over preserving and not wasting ideas. He's not precious enough over individual songs. And this is something I'll explain more in a bit. But... Let's go back to him writing a bunch of songs, okay? I'm not sure if someone should write 60, 80, or 100 songs for an album. That's arguably misplaced energy. Energy that could be spent honing the 20 very good songs you wrote. Energy that could be spent perfecting the 12 songs you actually chose for the album. I I don't know. What's a better strategy? One, writing a hook you're not that keen on, but seeing it through anyway because gotta write my songs, or two, throwing out every mediocre idea you have till you have one that's great 
and then grinding hard on that song and repeat. Well, repeat point two, I mean. Mm. I think you're really hitting the nail on the head here. It's so underdeveloped and completely wasted energy. But, I mean, for them, wouldn't you just keep throwing songs at the wall if you had a hit like Closing Time and that's how your biggest hit worked already? You know, I, I mean, I'm not saying right. I don't think we're saying right four songs a year, but definitely land somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I just what it, it's funny you you touch on that. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit, but that what you're saying somewhere in the middle that that's how Dan Wilson operates with the people for whom he writes songs. I probably should have operated that way for Semisonic. Well. So right. let me let me back up because I don't want to get there quite yet. So to to go further with this idea, <laughs> when I listen to Semisonic, I I don't believe they spent time making their twelve chosen songs the best twelve songs they can be, and in fact Wilson supports this by basically echoing what you said, Jerry, about being underdeveloped. Dan Wilson supports all this by saying that he refuses to demo songs with his band. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there you go, exactly. Right, thank you. That, that, that is what I meant when I said he isn't precious enough over individual songs. So yeah, he'll write 80-plus songs for an album, but he believes that recording a song is like catching lightning in a bottle. He believes that the first time you record something, it's probably the best so why would you waste that on a demo? <sighs> I mean, there's like something to that, but like de- definitely not in this case. Right? It's definitely important to capture the moment and that feeling of a recording. I mean, that's what it is, but like elaborate on your song, my dude. Right? It, dude, it goes back to what you and I were talking about the other day, actually, with uh, if, I, if I may get tangential for a moment, but how... People recorded in the 60s in the history of recorded music, right? An archive of a live performance. Right, the that, definition of a recording. Right, and but to have that live performance be a recording-worthy re- performance, you probably had to perf- rehearse that performance a lot. It's a completely... Right. It's like Dan Wilson's understanding of not wanting to over-rehearse or over-demo a song, it's counterintuitive because, yes, a live performance can be special and you want to capture that, but to do the live performance well, you have to rehearse a lot. And the recording version of rehearsing a lot are fucking demos. (laughs) So, I... I don't know. This is this is where things get, uh, you know, a bit twisted to me. Is he doesn't seem to mind churning out songs, but he has an almost superstitious belief that a band can't record a single song too much, lest the performance become diluted. Which, again, performances become better the more you become familiar with them. You just have to be able to stay present in the performance, even though you've done it a thousand times. So Dan Wilson, I don't know, man. The focus should <laughs> the focus should be placed on perfecting the written quality of the final song. 
the focus should also be placed on the recording and perfect and perfecting the chosen songs. The focus should not be placed on writing 80 plus 100 some odd songs just to find the good ones. And then once you find those good ones, you do your damnedest to get them in the first take or two. That, that's not right, in my opinion. I mean, there's, there's some value in that, but yeah, not so much in this case. No, definitely not. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. And anyway, I, how can I support this, right? How can I support all this? Well, just like I started to touch on a bit earlier, this whole thing of writing 80, 100 songs, this is not how Dan Wilson works when he writes songs for other artists. When Dan Wilson was writing someone like you with Adele, you better believe that he didn't come at Adele with 73 pre-written songs, you know, ready to present her. That would have been a waste of his time and hers. He at most probably had three to five songs to show her. And maybe not even that. He maybe had a handful of chords, right? And then they wrote the song together. <sighs> All right. I concede this. Writing poetry and prose does well maybe let's so poetry because there is a certain x factor there but definitely with writing prose it works the way dan wilson wishes songwriting worked the more you do it and just churn it out in workmanlike fashion the better you get at it novelists do this journalists do this the more you practice playing music maybe you're not gonna become a better songwriter but the better you get at, at playing that instrument, the more you practice playing that instrument. And from some technical point of view, yeah, the more you write songs, the better you get. But you, I, you're not just going to all of a sudden become Babyface or Diane Warren because you've written songs for 20 years. Again, you can't teach talent. And that workmanlike behavior doesn't work for everybody because whether it's Dan Wilson of Semisonic or even people I love like Nick Cave of The Bad Seeds and The Birthday Party or Rivers Cuomo of Weezer, I don't think I've ever seen proof that day in, day out, like nine to five office hours churning out songs in, in an office hours like scenario results in great songs. I've not seen proof of that and I'll Say it again, Nick Cave. His writing is phenomenal. His prose are phenomenal. I think that his music fan base continues to grow more and more niche because the music is impressive, but I wouldn't say his music is what it once was. I definitely wouldn't say that for Weezer, despite what their cadre of fans on Reddit might say. But anyway, listen, at the end of the day, <laughs> plain old just writing is is pretty simple well in theory it's simple yeah I, yeah in, in in theory i mean hey you know well hear me out writing is problem solving problem solving with language it's it's capturing these these vague things called thoughts pinning them down and breaking them down with the tools of language so that thoughts can be shared and understood you get better at it the more you do it. And you needn't be precious over exhausting good ideas. They'll keep coming to you, you know? Totally, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with all that, except that that process is simple. I think that because language is a tool, and 
Uh, like because language is a tool, people have a difficult time with it, and mm. you know some people can't wield that power of of speech, let alone being able to get it to the page. So sure. So you're right. I you know what I misspoke then with calling it simple. What I mean, what I should have said is is just plain old writing prose. What you and I've done here, Jerry, with this this script that we're <laughs> occasionally working from, it's not simple. But it's straightforward. It's more straightforward than songwriting is. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, yeah, songwriting. Something that incorporates words, music, and this intangible, impossible-to-harness X factor of subjective brilliance. That is not... You cannot tell me that 100% on a one-to-one basis absolutely improves the more you grind at it. It just doesn't. No, no, exactly. Exactly. It'd be nice if it did, right? <laughs> it would be great. But yeah, that there's the uh, there's the talent factor. Exactly. And that's not something that you can just grind at. I really wish you could. I would I would be a famous recording musician and not putting together a podcast with you, pal, but you know. <laughs> hey. <Right. laughs> but here we are picking apart other people's music. Hey. So I, I don't know. Listen, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the way professional songwriters like a Diane Warren or a Babyface works. I don't think so, but maybe maybe they do constantly churn out 300 songs a month or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Babyface, Diane Warren, whoever it is, you know, their day in, day out grinding, just that results in one or two songs we hear recorded by various artists. It doesn't result in a Diane Warren album of 15 originals because dare I say, the vast majority of what Diane Warren types churn out probably is God fucking awful. For every blame it on the rain and don't want to miss a thing, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even want to consider what her C and D sides sound like. We don't hear them for a reason. With a frontman like Wilson or even Nick Cave and Rivers Cuomo, we do hear them. Those C and D sides are their album. Now, it may make art. I don't know if it makes great pop music. For sure. And I think you just hit another major point about Dan. It feels like he's not making music for the art. You know, which of, which of your favorite musicians don't have a fully clear artistic vision that goes along with their music? I mean, we mm. as consumers... We need the whole story to become a fan. You know, yeah. we're we're a fan of an artist, and we listen to a musician, but we're fans of the artist. I do, that's especially true now, honestly. Absolutely, yeah, more so. Well, speaking of songs, let's get to it and talk about what makes this song great, huh? All let's, right. Let's start with our technical analysis. And obviously, Jerry, chime in whenever you feel the spirit take hold. But uh, from my point of view as a songwriter, this is the technical analysis. Now, for a band that can be so excruciatingly light on hooks, (laughs) Closing Time has three figures of music that are arguably all hooks. Three. (laughs) Okay. I mean, really, dude, it's crazy. I'm beginning to think, in fact, when critics say shit like Semisonic's music is, quote, filled to the brim with hooks galore, they're referring solely to this song. That's how many oh, hooks absolutely. are here. I'd, I'd believe it. Right? So let's, let's break this down. 
It begins with an already iconic guitar strum that is instantly recognizable. And for all the shit I talk about how semisonic songs are nothing but a just a guy strumming an open chord on a guitar, it 100% works here. It finally pays off, and it sounds so fresh and distinctive, you'd think it's the first time they started a song this way. Probably another reason why it's the first track on the album. Probably another reason. That's a good point right there. The production on the guitar, the pattern with which Wilson strums, everything about this single guitar sound and how it's playing what it's playing works, and it sticks with the listener. That's why I'm willing to actually call it a hook. It's one of those... It's one of those chord strums. The second somebody hears it, they they if they don't exactly immediately know what song is about to play, they have one of those. It's on the tip of my tongue. I think I know, but I don't know. But I think I know. Moments. That's how powerful yeah, they start it chug- is. They start chugging their drink. They're like, "Why did I need to finish my drink so quickly?" <laughs> Exactly. It's a Pavlovian response to to being about to be kicked out. (laughs) And after that guitar strum, a liltingly wistful, almost mournful piano melody is played by bassist John Munson. It's one of the key iconic elements of the song. And hey, that could be the hook right then and there. But the most interesting part of the song then comes a vocal hook, the real hook of the song. Dan Wilson, shockingly in rock music, delivering a vocal hook. A hook that is a vocal figure of music and not something played by an instrument. So, here we are, finally. What's a goddamn motherfucking hook, right? A hook is an easily recognizable and memorable figure of music that you hear either immediately or very early in a song and its function is to hook the listener. A hook is not just someone hitting a mundane lick at the top of a song. Okay, a hook is so much more than that. You can't just blurt out a shitty guitar solo. That's, that is not a hook. <laughs> In rock music, a hook is typically, now I stress typically, but not always, there are absolutely exceptions, it is typically a guitar lick or a riff. Maybe even a bass line. The point is that in, in rock music, a hook is typically something played by an instrument. And a lot of times you'll hear it return after the chorus and before the subsequent verses, mimicking how the song begins. Now, in rap, however, the hook is much more than that. And also something, frankly, quite different. In rap, a hook is a vocal line. Always. And if not find me and smack the shit out of me in the mouth right now. But, uh, uh, you know, it's at least almost always a vocal line delivered by the rapper. And the hook is not just the hook, it's also the chorus. It's truly the crux of the song. Save for Closing Time's hook not being its chorus, that is exactly what is going on here. Closing Time's real hook is Dan Wilson singing the words Closing Time at the start of each verse. It, it is so the hook. I, I've actually seen other reviewers refer to this shockingly as the chorus, which just makes me so angry that anybody would refer to two words sung at the beginning of what's clearly the verse as the chorus. It doesn't matter that it recurs, folks. This is not the chorus. It's the hook. Doing something 
that we're not typically used to hearing hooks do in rock music. Again, being a vocal line and being repeated at the top of each verse. Hooks aside, the song also starts by priming us for a massive dynamic shift, something that doesn't really happen much in this song, but it happens right at the beginning. There are no drums or bass in this first verse. It's just guitar, piano, vocals, and some lightly sweeping synth strings. Then Munson steps away from the piano, readies his bass, and drummer Jacob Slichter comes crashing down in a moment that can only be called the beat drop. Right? Which really, yeah, and it does a super fun stereo pan fade thing also to come in. It's, 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 it's cool. I didn't pick up on that. Thank you for pointing that out, Jerry. Anytime, bud. There you go. That's what you're here for, right? Man? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> and so this is where the chorus comes in. I know who, you, who I want to take me home. That's the chorus, okay? <laughs> now, it's the chorus because it happens structurally where a chorus happens. And it's the only figure of music and words that is repeated over and over and recurs with no changes. Right. A perfectly correct use and definition of chorus. Exactly. It's just that it's not the most memorable part of the song, which is, I think, what throws people, right? Hearing right. Dan, hearing Dan Wilson go closing, that's what everybody remembers. But again, that's a hook, folks, not the chorus. So... When the verse comes back, we have the band playing in full force. Munson, he's doing something cool here. He's still primarily playing the piano and still comes in on bass to accentuate the chords, but not play a full bass line. This guy's the fucking MVP here. He, he, I, I don't know how they recorded it, probably recorded it separately, but in the music video and in live performances, you see this guy just double fisting it with one hand on the keys and the other hand hammering strings on the bass. Uh, folks, just very quickly, if you don't know what I mean, uh, a hammer, when you're hammering, you're just hitting that string really hard with your finger, and that alone sounds the note. You don't have to actually pluck the string. And the way he does this is impressive and rad as fuck. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I definitely cannot do that. Some <laughs> of my face, favorite basses do do that. It's, a, it's, it's crazy. There's a lot of, I think, a lot of basses are multi-instrumentalists, actually, you know? Anyway. But, uh, Not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're a, you're a bassist podcaster and pedal maker. Okay, right. And seller, you're a multi thinger, is what it is, Jerry. Speaking of rad, the guitar solo here is perhaps the most rad and definitely least typical and rote solo we've ever gotten from Dan Wilson. He's not even playing a solo in the typical sense. What he's doing is after hitting a chord, Wilson plays a riff, essentially. Not a riff as you are typically thinking, though, as he's playing that with octave chords as opposed to playing individual notes. And an octave chord is simply a guitar chord with one note played twice, an octave apart. In an octave, we hear the same note twice at lower and higher frequencies, eight notes, or... An octave apart. <laughs> uh, isn't it? Isn't it twelve notes, Sandy? An octave is eight notes. That's where. That's why it has the prefix of oct. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Well, I guess. Okay. So if you're not counting flats and, and sharps and whatever, which I guess we don't 
And uh, this is definitely a layman's music lesson. Folks at home, <laughs> at Bad Band Great Song on Instagram, Facebook, BBGS Show on Twitter, let us know, uh, do you count those flats and sharps? <laughs> I mean, they're notes. Uh, they are notes, but an octave... Well, anyway, octave chords have a truly righteous rad and a ripping <laughs> sound. <laughs> it's the sound of a melodic buzzsaw tearing through the mix and after scaling up with this octave riff he hits the next chord and repeats and that's the solo it's actually the other it's the only part of the song where it feels like he's really ripping on that sg and playing right? an sg like an sg should be played like <laughs> it really comes through it's it's rad <laughs> it is it is and it's emotive crunchy tuneful melodic and forceful it's badass and it's kind of an anti-solo in that it's a solo that's not about being a solo, you know? Yeah, it's definitely t- kind of tough to call it a solo. I, I, I kind of see it more as like a bridge since there's just no ripping that's been had. But yeah, I'm sure we could call it a solo. I mean, I think it's fair to look at it as a bridge, but because of what he is playing and how it could easily be played in, as just you know part of a scale single notes not just going up on with octave chords i yeah i see it as a solo but yes i mean it's up for debate folks <laughs> and when the song ends it definitively ends while also employing a sort of fade out as the final notes of the songs are allowed to ring out and decay. We end with the hook and a poignant line that encapsulates the song. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. A quote that is often attributed to Roman philosopher Lucius Aeneas Seneca the Younger, though there is actually nothing available to back that up other than some websites on the internet continuing to state that Seneca said that, but with no sources ever, because why cite sources, right? <laughs> Yo, fuck Lucius Aeneas Seneca the Younger. <laughs> if, some, if someone has a book that predates the internet proving Seneca said this, please let us know. Uh, get a, 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 at Bad Band Great Song, Instagram on Facebook, at BBGS Show on Twitter. Let us know. Or uh, Bad Band Great Song at gmail.com. Email the show, folks. Yes, yes. So please, please email us books. We love, <laughs> we love getting books in our email. This is this is the precedent you're setting, Fanny. Episode one. All right, great. Email email us books. Books. That's my email preferred way of getting books is via email. <laughs> Send them over, folks. Yeah, and let's move on to our personal analysis. So, I mean. Well, as I said already, when I I was I was this was when I, I was eleven when this song came out, and it was the <laughs> first song I learned how to play on guitar. Not because I wanted to, Jerry. Not because I wanted to, just because this was the first song my guitar teacher taught me. Eleven years old, nineteen ninety eight. So, I bought this CD. I listened to it the whole way through. As one should when they get their hands on an album for the first time, by the way. And if you don't listen to music that way, folks, you're listening wrong. 
hundred. I hundred percent agree. Right, just plain and simple. You're listening wrong. Do you skip around in a book, a, a comic, movie, or or video game the first time you experience those? You know. Yeah, exactly. I did the last mission on GTA Five first. <laughs> Fucking dinguses. <laughs> yeah, that would have. Not only would that not be possible, that just would suck. But anyway, yeah. Listen, you can tell me that listening to music is different. I'm telling you it shouldn't be, and that you're wrong. <laughs> but moving on, yeah, I listened to this whole thing, and <laughs> I knew I hated it. I knew it was bad, all of it. No, except for closing time. As schmaltzy, sentimental, and profoundly uncool as it was, it was great, and it, it still is great. Did you get your guitar out yet, yeah, man? Can, can we hear a little bit of this from you, please? <laughs> Please, please. That was not going to happen. I knew. All right. <laughs> I, I knew at 11 years old that this band was awful and that the song was far from cool. But I recognized how affecting it was. You know, I understood that despite my tastes, it's a great song. Play it. <laughs> Come on, play it. <laughs> oh, man. You know what? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe when we have a Patreon one day, if we ever get oh, a Patreon, yeah, the folks at home could play for the pleasure, the pleasure, huh, of getting to hear me cover Semisonic. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't that be something, folks at home? Let us know how you feel about that. I would have to probably leak that off of the Patreon. The world needs that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You could leak it. I will not Metallica you. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> This song, this song taught me some things. It taught me some lessons, and lessons that I believe more folks should actually learn, especially folks who are entrenched in fandoms. Now, what are those lessons? Well, primarily think critically. Embrace critique, right? Observe things as objectively as humanly possible while being aware of your own biases, and also accept that you are not the art you love, right? You know, as Ian Mackay once sang, you are not what you own. Now, while Semisonic and Closing Time did not inspire this show, those lessons that I learned from this song are what this show is predicated on. It's about understanding how something that I may not personally love is absolutely, indisputably great. It's also about understanding that just because you love something doesn't mean it's good. Now, I'm not here to tell you, we're not here to tell you what you should and should not listen to. People misconstrue that as the whole point of critique. We're not here for that. We're here to say we should be able to have these conversations about art, about something being, quote, good or bad, and not have it become a personal affront we shouldn't cage and debate each other over whether something is, quote, good or bad, because it's a mental exercise. It's one that we all benefit from. And again, you are not what you own. Or, as we will say in this show, you are not the art you love. And I mean, shit, if that isn't the point of art, then what is? Start the conversation. Uh, right? that's, that's the least it could do. That's, and I think what art is supposed to do, start a conversation. 
Absolutely. Well, some more, some more supporting for my ramble here. The Greek philosopher Plutarch. <laughs> Yo, fuck, fuck Plutarch. <laughs> Said fluck. Yeah, we're getting real college boy here, talking about Lucius Aeneas Seneca the Younger, Plutarch, man, damn. Well, as the Greek philosopher Plutarch once said, it does not follow that because a particular work of art succeeds in charming us, its creator also deserves our admiration. So, you see, folks at home, people have been separating the art from the artist for millennia. So now we challenge you to separate yourself from all you love and identify with. Because what you love does not define you. Who you are, sure, that dictates and defines what you love. But I argue it's not a two-way street. I maintain what you love does not define you or have any bearing on you. You define what you love, and it ends there. Find power in that. I regularly question and criticize what I hold dear because they don't define me. I define them. This song, this song taught me that. And yeah, yeah, I didn't, you know, fully articulate all of this at 11, but you better believe that at 11, this song had me grappling with with how can I love something that I also think is trash? <laughs> and it also prepared me for a lifetime of considering that. Folks, accept that some things you love just suck. And accept that that is not an indictment of you. <laughs> I don't think anybody will argue that a candy bar is, quote, bad for you. But we can still enjoy them and love them. So let's bring that level of objective critique back to art. And folks, please, put yourself above art. You are not the art you love. That, all of that, that is what this song taught me. And if all of that was a bit of a tangent, and you know, kind of was, let me bring it back home and simply say, for all the memes, all the gags in TV shows, and all the gauche and sentimental memories... There's actually nothing funny about this song. This is a fucking great song. It is pure, unironic, catchy, and heartfelt. And the bar's closed, folks. Time to go home. <laughs> but before you go home, before you go home, folks, don't leave just yet. Uh, yeah, we got a little more. We got a little. I, have, I do have a question, a rhetorical question. Is the song cool? No. But that's what makes it fucking cooler, because cool music actually can really suck. Emotional music, however, is almost always fucking rad. For the most part, we learn how to be cool. We don't learn how to be emotional. We just are. Rather, mm, actually, rather, we learn how to not be emotional as a means of seeming more cool than we actually are and just getting through life. And you know what? Emotional music isn't even just emotional. It's as intellectually compelling and rewarding as some obtuse, cool, post-punk bullshit. Why? Because it's still a song with music that moves the brain and lyrics. Lyrics 
that are words unpacking and communicating ideas. And here at Bad Band Great Song, we love music. Like, don't forget that. We like it so much, we decided to make a whole podcast about it. So don't, don't forget that, guys. We're not just here to rip on it. <laughs> I almost thought you were, that was going to be a joke. But that was a sincere moment, Jerry. Thank you for that. I got a little sincerity. <laughs> Dare I say you got a little emotional? Mm. Well, shit. Mm. No, maybe not. Okay. Uh. <laughs> well, folks... That's it. That's it. And if that's it, that's it. So I think it's now time to bid you all, the folks at home, a good night and farewell. So, folks, thank you for your time. Stay strange, be kind, and love yourselves. I, I just want to add one, one thing before we go. I'm so excited that everyone's joining us on this strange adventure of a podcast. I just not need to acknowledge, acknowledge this is our first episode and uh, the first episode we're making public, and I'm just there so excited go. about it. Yeah, uh, but in all seriousness, thanks, guys, so much for listening. Like and subscribe and whatever you do. Hit us on all the socials. And I got a little bit of a semi from this. but uh, <laughs> Oh, man. We'll see you in hell, folks. Eh, fuck you and your friends. <laughs>